Good morning, church. As you can see on the screen, we've got two Bible readings this morning. The first one is Psalm chapter 8, and then the second one is Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5 to 10. Starting with Psalm chapter 8. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honour. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. All flocks and herds and the animals of the wild the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the path of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then the second Bible reading is Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5 to 10. So starting from verse 5. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him. You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honour, and you put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with the glory and honour, because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Good morning, everybody. Really glad that you're here today, that we get to go through our next big question, is there a God? We asked you to ask your family and friends, what do you think God is like? And one of the top responses was, well, I'm not even sure there is a God. We're going to kick that around today. Let me just begin by saying, I am a Christian, I am a pastor, uh, and I uh, do believe in God, if you are just wondering. Um, But it's okay to talk to someone who believes in God to know if there is a God. Um, so let's explore that. Um, but what I hope you can see as we get through this is Christianity does not ask you to believe six impossible things before breakfast in order to believe in God. Christianity is actually uh, built on evidence as well as faith. It's not something that's made up. In fact, today I have a learning outcome for you. And those in education tell me that when you prepare a lesson, you have a learning outcome you want your students to get to know at the end of that day. And today's learning outcome is simply this. Wow! If you can say wow at the end of today's talk, learning outcome achieved. And I'll ask you at the end if you've said wow even just a little bit. And I hope you can as we go through. The question is, well, how are we going to have our minds blown with the word wow? Um, Well, two ways. I want to claim that God can be, go from unknown to 
visible, unknown to visible, and impersonal to personal. So God can be this unknown God to a visible God who you can know personally. That's what I'm going to claim. And on the way, we're going to say, wow, just a little bit. And we'll go through Psalm 8 and Hebrews 5, which quotes Psalm 8 in the New Testament as well. There's a philosopher, the philosopher, I should say, by the name of Daniel Dennett, who doesn't believe in God, and he says, the God who lovingly fashioned each and every one of us and sprinkled the sky with shining stars for our delight, that God is like Santa Claus, a myth of childhood and not anything a sane, undiluted adult could believe in. The latest census data from Australia uh, would show that lots of people agree with Daniel's assessment. God is a nice thought for a child, but really when you grow up, it's foolish to believe in God because the evidence says otherwise. Evidence. It's a really good thought. Let's kick that around for a moment. What does the evidence say? Firstly, the amount of evidence and the kind of evidence for someone to believe in God is going to be different for each one of us. Every one of us has a belief blocker, so to speak, and if you've been a Christian for uh, any length of time, you'll know that there are challenges to believing in God that you face that maybe someone else doesn't. Today, I'm going to answer this question, is there a God, by looking at what scholars call natural theology. You don't have to remember that term, but I'm going to look at natural theology. It just means we're looking at the witness of the cosmos, of creation, as a claim for evidence that God does exist. And here's what I want you to know. Some people you might talk to in your sphere of influence might find this stuff really helpful towards their journey of faith. And others may not even care, it just doesn't come on their radar. But they might have other belief blockers. It could be suffering and evil, it could be indifference, it could be many other things. Evidence is important for belief. Let's be mindful as we talk to people where someone's on their journey to faith and what it might be helpful to say to them. Secondly, Romans chapter 1 is like the opposite to Psalm 8. It tells us it's impossible to escape to escape uh, evidence for God, except in Romans 1, people don't want to believe in God. Uh, Thomas Nagel is a professor of philosophy at New York University, and he says something of what Romans 8 tells us when he says, I want atheism to be true, and I am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't that I just don't want to believe in God, I don't want there to be a God. And the third thing about evidence is that it has to be interpreted. We can all look at the same evidence and arrive at a different conclusion. I once recall a conversation with a dear friend of mine that came over for dinner and we're washing up in the kitchen and we're somehow talking about space and the cosmos and, and I said to him, and he's not a Christian, and I said, uh, when I look at the stars and the planets and what Hubble's doing, and this was a few years back before James Webb was there, but I said, I look at that and I say, uh, wow, I'm attributing this to the creative mind of God. When you look at this, um, you don't say that. But we, can you see we're looking at the same stuff? We're both looking at these photographs and all these wonderful things in the, in the cosmos, but we're just arriving at a different conclusion about who, what, why, where, how. And for him, he'd never considered that we're both looking at the same photographs, but both landing at a different conclusion for how and why. In fact, one songwriter in the Bible was doing exactly that. He looked up into the cosmos and said, I reckon this is like God's business card. 
maybe not with the phrase business card, but it's on display, he says, for everyone to see. And it's speaking to us about God if we'd only hear what he has to say. And that's where Psalm 8 comes into it. Here's how it begins. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. And through the praise of children and infants, you've established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you have set in place. So Psalm 8 comes in a section of the Psalms grouped from chapter 2 to uh, chapter 14, Psalm 2 to Psalm 14. And in those 14 Psalms, belief in God is being undermined in lots of ways. And the Psalms are written, verse Psalm, Psalm 2 to Psalm 14, as a way to navigate belief in God when there's opposition. And right in the middle of those 14 or 13 Psalms is Psalm chapter 8. And it calls us back to consider the creation narrative and the creation mandate from Genesis. That is God's people ruling over God's creation. And this, when reflected on, it causes the author to say, how majestic is your name? How beautiful. That's what the word glory means in this psalm. How beautiful, how wonderful are the works of your hands, Lord. Except you get to verse 2, and you scratch your head because it says, children and infants praising God to silence his enemies. Of course, in the context of this psalm, it's seeing us how to navigate life when belief in God is undermined. And here is the reminder that actually it's the small and the humble in this life, like a child or a baby, are the ones that will praise and glorify God. The proud, the strong, the avenger, they cannot praise God for the work of his hand because their hubris gets in the way of that. But rather, it's the small and the meek who recognize God and who silence his enemies. Not the strong, but the small and low in this world. And you consider this God, and that happens when you think about the work of his fingers, his hands. You see, Psalm 8 not only talks about how the universe has been fine-tuned by God, but the reminder that us as humans have a mind to be able to lay bare the workings of everything we see, which is what he does. So, sit with me in this thought for a minute. What do we learn about God from his finger-creating heaven? Well, a few things. Firstly, I think it's astronomically big. 97 billion light years across, it's filled with immensely big things, our universe, like interstellar gas cloud Sagittarius B, as you can see on the screen. It is so big, it contains a billion, billion, billion litres of alcohol but you can't drink it. It's a big universe. Astronomically big, I think. But it's also astronomically small. If you enter the world of uh, quantum physics, you get to a world where things are so small they don't follow the normal laws of physics. Subatomic particles collapse into a solid object only when observed. Meaning, subatomic particles only exist as potential floating around until an intelligent mind looks at them and they become something. It is so small, yet so wonderfully astronomically big. Wow. And it's astronomically splendid. This is Lucy. 
Lucy is very small, uh, 4,000 kilometres wide, about the width of Australia, and only 50 light years from Earth, so just a, a you know, next-door neighbours in space talk. But actually, Lucy's made up from 90% crystallised carbon. And what is 90% crystallised carbon? Diamonds. It is estimated that Lucy is, is 10 billion, trillion, trillion carats worth of diamonds, in fact. And why is it called Lucy? That's right, Maura. The Beatles song, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. That's why they called it Lucy. It's, it's splendid, incredible. Or what about um, 16 Psyche? NASA has just sent a rocket to go to this asteroid and it's made up entirely of nickel and gold and iron. And if they could bring it back to Earth, and they can't, you can't bring this back to Earth, it would destroy Wall Street and the economy. Not because it would smash into it, but because it's worth over 10,000 quadrillion dollars. Gold will become worthless if this thing ever got back to Earth. It is an astronomically splendid universe that we have that God has stuck up there. And it's astronomically well planned. Not something that just happens by chance. Someone once claimed that intelligent life could happen in our world uh, just like a group of monkeys with a computer could write one line of a Shakespeare sonnet. And so um, the British National Council of Arts decided to test this theory. They put, uh, how many monkeys? Six monkeys in a cage for four weeks. There you go, with a computer. Four weeks, six monkeys. They came up with 50 pages of typing, but not one word, which isn't surprising. Um, The chance of writing one Shakespeare sonnet line which is actually 14 lines if you're an English teacher, I think. It's about that long for a line of Shakespeare's sonnetry, if that's a word. From a monkey in six weeks is one in ten chance with 690 zeros after it. That is 690 zeros. I counted them. Well, I got word to do the count for me. But to put that in perspective, you think, well, what does that mean? Well, for example, the the number of protons, electrons and neurons that we've observed in our whole universe has only been calculated to 10 to 80 zeros. So every proton, neuron, electron in our observable universe, that's only 10 to the power of 80. Whereas it's the chance of a monkey doing Shakespeare is 10 to the power of 690. Imagine the number of chances that you would need to get intelligent life from the zillions and other things happening, not just one line of, of Shakespeare here but everything else to happen to fall into place to make something like we have. As I consider the heavens and the work of the divine mind's fingers, the moon and the stars that you have set into place, how majestic is your name, Lord. And even 3,000 years since Psalm 8 was written, the passage of time has not dulled the glorious, wonderful, sharp edge from that verse. If anything, the more we observe and know, the more we echo the words, how majestic is your name, Lord. That's God's business card up there. But actually, some of it goes on because the business card of God's existence isn't just in the skies above, but it's really close to you right now. In fact, the evidence of God is right next to you, if you look around this room. Speaking of human and how we're positioned in this world, just as God rules the heaven. Humans image God as we rule over the land, the air and the sea. The psalmist says, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You've made them a little lower than angels 
and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. What is everything? All flocks, all herds, animals of the wild, birds in the sky, fish in the sea, all that swims in the paths of the sea. It's an important distinction this psalm gets to here. There is a God-given, unique, aesthetic, and value placed upon humans. When we realize we're lower than God, but above all the other bits and pieces of the world. And the author can hardly believe that because he says, what is man that you're mindful of us, humankind? What is, what is, who are we? God treats us better than we deserve by putting us in that place. And it's not because we're so amazing that God passes down his glory and considers us. It's because God is so kind and generous. Did you know that a chimpanzee and humans have 98.8% same DNA? But that 1.2% makes a huge difference. Only humans can comprehend the cosmos as we have done. Create a violin, write a symphony, understand quantum physics, engineer a car, manufacture penicillin, operate on a human brain, wire a house with electricity, create a book, or relate to others whom we don't know and turn a bean into a delicious drink called coffee. How great. Knowing our God-given position in life is so valuable. When we come to realize, when we realize that, when we come to realize when we know that, we are crowned with glory and honor, as Psalm 8 verse 5 says. Not by being God, but by finding our place under God. Meaning, humanity is meant to be here. Except, when you say something like this, and you have a God and humans and then the creation under us, it can become uncomfortable, because it, it may mean that your life is going to be terribly inconvenient if you were to believe in God at this point. When I worked in IT for a number of years, I went to a post office regularly to send things and pick up parcels and packages, and I got to know the post office guy quite well, and we would often talk, and one year I went to the post office near Christmas, and I think, from memory, carols were playing on the, the sound um, things in the post office, and I said to him, oh, do you like Christmas carols? And he said, um, oh, do you go to church? And I said, oh, yeah, I do. You're welcome to come along. We're going to sing carols. And he said this, um, no thank you. If I go to church, I know that God will convict me my life isn't quite in order with him and I have to do something about that and I just don't want that conviction so I just don't go to church because then I can live how I want. And I thought, what an incredibly honest response. Um, I think I said something like, well, you're always welcome and I, I just could not believe someone had said that. It threw me off. Except... When you realize in Psalm 8 verse 4 that God is mindful of you, you start to see God's not a cosmic killjoy. It would seem not an inconvenience at that point, but a delight to get to know the one who's placed such honor and care upon us. Of course, don't ever think that your vision of life is perfectly aligned with God's. It is in conflict. Therefore, that's why there is faith and repentance too. My post office friend knew that. But it's nevertheless, it's never joyless to know and follow God, even if it does mean your life is not in line with Him. You see, Psalm 8 talks of this intrinsic value placed on humankind because we're created in the image of this gloriously beautiful, wonderful God. 
And we're, by contemplating God's majesty, the songwriter begins and ends in the same place. If you notice in verse 1 and 9, it's the same, same words. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. It starts and ends with praise of God. You see, Psalm 8 draws attention to the majesty of God by observing two things, the created world and the created people. That is God's business card, helping him go from unknowable to knowable. Wow. How are you going with that learning outcome? Just a little bit, maybe? Except, we have to end somewhere. We can't end here. It would be a mistake to conclude creation's enough to fully know God. Romans 1, as I said, shows us what humans do with this general revelation of God. It describes creation speaking to us about God in Romans 1, but people suppress this knowledge as they look around. John Calvin, a very famous theologian, once said on Romans 1, however, the the foul ungratefulness of man is disclosed in this verse because we have within us a workshop graced with God's unnumbered works and a storehouse overflowing with riches referring to the cosmos we ought to then break forth into praise of him. But we're actually puffed up and swollen with more pride. His point is that we take the witness of creation and rather than moving towards God, we actually turn that into a God. You see, creation speaks to us about the divine mind, but it takes his movement to us in a personal way to know this God. And that's where the verses of Hebrews come into it. Hebrews 5 at 2, 5 to 10, the author takes Psalm 8 and says Jesus is the photograph of this majestic God. Colossians would say he's the image of the invisible God. If you ever wonder what God's like, look at Jesus. Let me just read verses 9 and 10 of Hebrews 2. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and for whom and through whom everything exists should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. You see, here's the claim of Jesus that God put on a human body. He made himself lower than the angels for a little while, but still full of the glorious majesty of God. And by the grace of God, this Jesus tasted death for everyone. The word taste appears in the Bible to generally describe eating bread, except in this one place. It's the idea that you experience the bread by eating it. right? And here it means Jesus experiences death by eating it for us, is the thought. You consider the biblical story it begins with God creating the world and people, but soon after, people decreate themselves by tasting the fruit of sin and rebellion away from God, right? And ever since then, humanity has been suffering under death and trying to be full and satisfied away from God. But then Jesus comes along and tastes death for us. And remarkably, the opposite happens when he dies. He doesn't stay dead. Instead, he's crowned with glory and honour on the other side of death. A glory above the angels and above us. And then you see what he does with that glory? He shares it with us. All the majesty, all the glory of the heavens and creation is gathered up into this personable, visible person of Jesus who's like us but so unlike us 
who invites us into the glory of God by saving us from death. And in the Christian vision of life, God goes from impersonal to personal in the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus. You know, Isaac Newton um, may have pointed out the fact that we have a law of gravity, the apple falling off the tree. But law of gravity only tells us how things behave, right? Under the influence of gravity. Here's what happens. Boom, it falls. The law tells us nothing about the what, the how, or the why of gravity. And his point in discussing this, he said this, it was about we need more than a law. We need to ask, is there a mind behind that law? And Psalm 8, as I'm making the claim, teaches us that it's impossible to escape the evidence from God if we look around at creation, because creation points out there is a God. The law tells us the what, and the Bible, not opposed to science in any way, says actually there's a who. And in the preaching of the good news of Jesus, God moves closer to us. So we can know that beautiful, majestic God who set his glory in the heavens. So I invite you to join the quest in understanding our world and be amazed at what you see. But I invite you to do that, enlightened by more than a law of gravity, but by the mind and the creator behind it, who is personal and calling us into a relationship with him, who is aiming our universe at a point of redemption and refreshment as well. Because the Christian vision of life doesn't just give me a way to make sense of here and now, but as Jesus tasted death, the finality, the pain of death is replaced with hope and meaning. Salvation in God's mind is from a life without him to an eternity with him. Spared death, spared its consequence. So, one more learning outcome, one more, one more chance, if you haven't got there yet, to say wow. Let me give you one wow moment. This is uh, Messer, Messier 51, a very beautiful whirlpool galaxy. Many years ago, in 1992, 96, around then, NASA got Hubble and they said, let's have a look in the middle of, what's in the middle of that big bright spot they decided to have a look at? And when they pointed their telescope there, they saw this. Big old X shape or a cross shape. And as you marvel at the universe, at the end of the telescope, in all of your searching, God is gently helping you see that he's there waiting for you. And the way to God is through a wooden cross of Jesus. And as much as you can say, wow, at, the, at God's majestic creation, what is even more majestic is Jesus and his glory. Why not get to know the God who loves to elevate the small and the humble, like in Psalm 8, to give them a glory as humans under him, but with him? So, uh, therefore, is there a God? What do you think? I'm claiming there is. How about you? And also, how's that learning outcome? Maybe... You can say, wow, just a little bit after that. Wow. But maybe it doesn't do it for you at the moment. Keep exploring. But maybe someone you know would love to know what you heard today. Let me pray. And then Peter will lead us through prayer as God's people. Father, thank you that you don't hide yourself, that you're a cosmic God who reveals yourself through the world, through creation. 
most wonderfully, perfectly, so that we can know you through Jesus, the image of God. Help us move closer to you to say, wow, that our majestic God. And Father, use us who believe in God just a little bit in your kindness to point someone that's a little bit closer to God, that you are real. So thank you, Lord, that you are kind and good and your glory is in the heavens for us to see. Amen.